I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 40, which along with Psalm 54, the Psalms appointed for today, Friday, March the 11th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're be continuing to look at the book of Deuteronomy today in chapter 10, verses 12 to 22, still in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 22 to 36, and in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. So, let's get at it, looking at Deuteronomy. Remember again, the context is uh, Moses is telling the people that he, of his concerns for what they would do when they come into the land, they would, they would fail is his uh, basic fear. So he's encouraging uh, the people, but at the same time, he's being honest and real <laughs> with them. So probably the best way to say it today would be to say he's been authentic because he's he's allowing them to see that he's angry, that he's discouraged at some level, that he's cynical at another level about their ability to keep the covenant which would mean cynical about their ability to keep the land once they have it. So he says, Now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Pretty simple, right? It's a very simple, straightforward thing. It's to love God and do the things that he commands. It's as simple as that. And so everything is intended to center around him. And it's not just for no reason at all. It's because he loved them first and he loves them always. And that's exactly what he's what Moses's argument is going to be. He's going to talk about the faithfulness of God being the, the bottom line for why they should be faithful to him. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. So the reason to be faithful to God is because he has been faithful to them. And that's the reason they point back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's because they were faithful, but God was more faithful. And he has continued to be faithful to them and in covenant with them because he first entered the covenant with Abraham. And and has been faithful to that covenant in spite of the fact that they haven't been, reciprocally so. And he says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. I can remember, this is years ago now, I can remember um, preaching here in Asheville. Pelham, probably our oldest, was, would have been maybe, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. And I preached about this this. Uh, circumcising the foreskin of your heart. And so afterwards he came up and said, Dad, that, that's really, you know, uncomfortable to hear you talk about that. And it was hilarious. And I said, well, it's, it's a biblical image, and it's over and over and over. And I, you know, I, I'm not sure. At the time I was probably preaching about what either Jeremiah or um, Isaiah had said about this. 
but it was really funny, his discomfort over this circumcision and foreskin all at the same time, and it really bothered him. So every time I come across a passage like this, it just makes me chuckle. But it's he's, he's just saying, you know, um, make your heart soft. You know, take the hardness off around your heart. Don't harden your hearts is exactly what he's saying. And I realize those are risky kind of language there. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And it's important. It's an important part of Jewish law that that they welcome the sojourners in the land. It doesn't mean that, that they didn't have borders. It has nothing to do with that idea. But the point was they wanted sojourners in the land. God wanted sojourners in the land. He wanted people to come near. He wanted them to see what the blessedness of the people of God looked like so that they would then come and they would, they would spend a season of time sojourning in the land, observing, learning, growing, and possibly then uniting themselves to the people. And so what, what they're comparing them with is, is that you guys went through your own um, hell down in Egypt, when you were sojourning in the land, you were not there permanently. You weren't a permanent fixture there. You were always knew that you were going to be leaving that land and coming to the land that God would give you whenever that time came for that to happen. And so the, the way that you were treated there, the last season of time, the one that these particular people experienced was horrible. And so you can't treat sojourners in your land in the same way. So that's the, the point of the whole sojourner is, is somebody who is not a permanent fixture in the land. They're there for a season of time, typically. And, and then if you sojourned in the land of Israel, if you chose along the way that you wanted to become part of the people of Israel, then you could absolutely convert. But what did you have to do? You had to get circumcised if you were a male. So it, it's important to see the, the way that we treat people who are sojourning in the land— it has a lot to do with the, our witness to him. And so that's important for us always to keep that in mind. He said, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen, which is to be the plagues in Egypt and the, um, the parting of the Red Sea and all that. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And, uh, and that, that would be an allusion back to the promise that God made to Abraham that, that his descendants would be as countless as the stars in the heavens. And so what he's saying is he has kept faithfulness with the nation— he has kept faith with Abraham, even though Abraham ha has not been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. He kept faith with Abraham ultimately. It's an amazing thing, but it's the same kind of promise that he makes to David that there will always be one to sit on his throne. And Jesus is the, the one who sits on that throne. In the gospel, remember, Jesus has just had the encounter with Nicodemus that night. And so after this, that encounter, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. I'm not sure 
quite why we needed that last parenthetical thing. If he's baptizing, he's obviously not in prison, but John the writer tells us this. So now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew, a particular Jew apparently, over purification, and that's what John's doing. This whole baptism thing has to do with purification. It's the purification from sin. It's repent and then go take a mikvah, a, this, this ritual bath um, that John is bringing people to. And it's what's odd about what John's doing is, and, and what we then begin to do in the church is this baptism. John's baptizing people, but a mikvah is something that you don't you don't give somebody a mikvah. A, a person takes a mikvah. There's there's not like an attendant. Nobody. It's not like a Roman bath or a Turkish bath or whatever. No, it's just something you you go down into the mikvah, and then you come out cleansed of your sins and your guilt. So it. That's probably the question that's that's being discussed here probably has something to do with, I don't understand quite what it is you're doing. And there are places in Jerusalem you can take a mikvah. The Pool of Siloam is one of those places. And so John, though, is outside Jerusalem with this. So they came to John at the time of this discussion between some of John's disciples and a Jew. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who is he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. So there's some evidence here that Jesus is baptizing people as well. And that doesn't seem to be a continuing feature of his ministry at all, but there is some baptism going on. And so there were people who would have been baptized by Jesus out there. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. He, in other words, what he's saying is, I don't own anything. I don't even own my ministry. Uh, that's God's. He has all those things in his hands. And I had a conversation with somebody yesterday about this whole sovereignty of God thing. And it's, it's the most comforting doctrine of all. And, and it's the thing that we can rest in. It's the place where we can find peace is that we know that God is sovereign over all things. He has all things, all times, all people, all, everything in his hands. And so at the end of the day, all we have to say is, Lord, your will be done. You know, I'll, I'll receive whatever you give me. I don't lay claim to anything on my own. And that's exactly what John said. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, and John, that would be who John sees himself as, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John is saying, look, you know, I came to do something. I came to do something pretty specific, and that is to point to the Messiah and to make him known in the world. And it, it, what he gets doesn't take away from me at all, because everything I have comes from God, period, end of sentence. And so he can't be taking away from me anything, because I don't own anything. <laughs> and John continues, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. And he's talking about himself there. He who comes from heaven is above all. So he repeats that. And so what he's saying is, is that, that that one comes from heaven. He is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He talks about things that, that he has seen and he has heard, but we haven't. And people don't receive his testimony because it doesn't line up with what they believe and what they know. And, and I've seen that happen so many times, it's unbelievable. I've got um, situations in my life along the way where people know something, 
but they don't. But you you can't get through to them. You don't actually know that. You've heard that, but you don't know that. And if you knew it, then you could prove it to me. And so one of the problems is is that what what Jesus taught and the way he spoke didn't fit with what they already believed. And it's it's the truth about what happens when when he talks about his own death to his disciples. They're, they they can't receive it because it doesn't fit with what they already quote know. <clears throat> so that's the biggest problem. And so that's exactly what he's saying here that nobody receives it. Whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so John says something there that's pretty interesting in that last sentence, right? Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. So believing is connected with obeying. If you, if you believe, then you will obey. And if you don't believe, then you will not obey. And so John says that, that if you don't believe, you won't obey. And then, therefore, you won't have life. You'll only know the wrath of God, not the love of God. In the epistle, um, we're going to get a different comparison. So far, what we've seen is this is a comparison between Jesus and the angels, and then Jesus and Moses. And now we're going to come to Jesus and a high priest. So what what the argument in the book of the Hebrews is, it's apparently written to a, a community of people who had begun to walk with Christ, and then somewhere along the way they lost faith in that, probably because he hadn't returned and they expected his imminent return. And so the, they began to question all this, and so the way they began to question it was to say, why don't we hedge our bets? Why don't we have Jesus and and so the point of the book of the Hebrews is to say you can't have Jesus in because it, it's the point John made there. He who is from heaven is above all. And so that's the point of Hebrews is to say he who is from heaven, that'd be Jesus, is above all. And so his comparison is constantly between Jesus and something else in Judaism. And what he's saying is, no, those things were just, they were sort of archetypes to point you to the true. And the true is Jesus. So he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest that he was talking about, which is God's rest from his works, so that no one may fall by the same sort of obedience, disobedience. So in other words, just continue to walk with him, continue to believe, continue to have faith in Christ. Don't lose heart. Don't do what they did when Moses was gone longer than they expected and turn back and make a golden calf. You know, that that's the, the issue that he's trying to get across here is to say, stop, don't don't do this. You're losing heart just like they did in the wilderness. You're acting the same way. And you've been given the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And and if we read the word properly, if we read it with the Holy Spirit and in conversation with the Holy Spirit, then then it is exactly that. It, it, it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and, and in that way, it convicts us of sin and of righteousness. 
and no creature is hidden from his sight, but we're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And, and that's an allusion back to Genesis 3. No creature is hidden from his sight. What did they try to do? They tried to hide themselves from God. And what does God say? Adam, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? Absolutely he knew where Adam was. He, did, he wasn't asking for information. He was asking a larger question of where are you? You have moved away from me by sin. And then all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's clearly an allusion back to the garden. And it's an allusion to say you can't hide in your sins. No matter what you think you can do, you can't hide from God. He sees all these things. He discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And the Word of God is both the Word written and it's Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest, this Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In other words, just believe in him. Believe completely in him. Understand that you can't believe in something in addition to Jesus. He is the only way and the only thing. Everything else has to go. Don't lose your faith. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the promise. That's the call for us as Christians. It's to draw near the throne of grace with confidence because of Christ and Christ alone.